Good morning. Welcome to our worship service this morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. And all of you had an extra hour of sleep this morning, so I'm sure you're energized. I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and tell them it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Would you do that? Welcome to our visitors, family members, uh, home folks. Good to see everybody here this morning, and I anticipate hearing from the Lord. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, we do adore you, and we recognize this morning that you are awesome, you are great, you are all-powerful. We could go on for hours describing you and all your glory. Today is your day, Lord, that you have called us to set aside, to rest, to worship, and our desire this morning in this place is to worship you, to give you honor and glory, and to hear from you also through your word. Father, would you come into our service this morning? We invite you here. I pray your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to illuminate truth in our hearts. Pray for Brother Lyle as he preaches at Cornerstone Chapel. Might you give him words to speak? Also pray for Brother Alan and Brenda. Father, today would you grant them grace for the trials that they are walking through in this moment, as well as their family. Please come into this service, Lord. May we do everything to your honor and glory. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of you that were here a couple of weeks ago remember that I began a series, a message series here on, on headship, God's order of headship. I'd like to continue that this morning. Um, this morning, the message title is Submission, the Key to the Headship Order. I put a couple of the texts down there. If you are someone who takes notes and likes to read um, later on, those are things you can just jot down if you'd like. Last time, I began in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and took the first three verses where it talks about uh, God's order. And we took a look into the book of Genesis and looked how God, from the beginning of time, uh, from creation, he formed Adam first and then he formed Eve, and they became the first family unit. God created Eve to be Adam's wife. And so from the very beginning of time, marriage has been part of, it's been the building block of every society. In fact, if you would go back hundreds to thousands of years, in many cultures, in many times, in many places, in many nations, in fact, universally, marriage between a man and a woman has been the foundation of every culture. Now, that doesn't mean that within cultures of the past there haven't been perversions. Uh, we know that Roman culture was very perverse, but our era today, as I, as I understand it, I'm not a historian, but I believe our time today in the United States where we are calling the union of two men together or two women together, we're calling that marriage, I don't believe that's ever happened before. Now, there's been, like I said, perversions in time past, but never in history has marriage been equated with something outside of a man and a woman. If you take that away, your society begins to crumble. Because God from the beginning said, one man, one woman, and from that union, children are born, and that's where you get a culture. That's where you get a society. That's where you get a nation. So I believe, unless our nation repents, I believe it is inevitable that we decline as a nation. Well, I'm not here to talk about America. 
We're looking at this for, for the church. But I just want us to remember that the foundation in Genesis of this, of this union and the way God set it up and ordered it, that goes all the way back to the beginning. Sadly, through the tragedy of Adam and Eve's fall, of, of yielding to sin, Adam's sin, death and suffering made their entrance into God's perfect creation. That well-ordered creation, you have death and suffering come into that. But that order, I would just want to reemphasize, that order preexisted the fall, and I believe God's purposes are never thwarted. God always accomplishes what he wants to. Now, along the way, man makes decisions, and things happen, and consequences happen, but God always has his way in the end. Last time, I also referenced the truth that redemption was the plan before the foundation of the world. Redemption was not God's plan B to fix the brokenness of creation. Redemption was built into the plan from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. God foreknew that, and he still went through with creation. So for this morning, as a starting point, I'd like to look a bit at what does God's order and headship and authority, as we, as, as we see it in the scriptures, what, what does that accomplish? And I would suggest that God's order of headship and authority accomplishes several things, just to get you thinking here. Number one, it provides an ordered structure for mankind to live and thrive within. I already said that, that it's, it's the foundation of every culture, of every nation over time. Now, we realize that um, not all families have functioned well. We know that over probably since the beginning of time, children have been born outside of marriage. That has always been the case, but for, for any stable society, you've had marriages between a man and a woman. <clears throat> and there's a family unit or a, or a community that is formed from that. So where this fails, where this ordered structure fails, whether it's broken marriages, whether it's children that are born out of wedlock or illegitimate unions like we're seeing in our nation today, at that point a society begins to crumble. So there's that. God's order has, has made it possible for mankind to thrive and perpetu- to uh, perpetuate for thousands of years. The second one, which is a little bit more what my theme is this morning, is... It is a visible display of the relationship with Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 calls it a great mystery when it talks about marriage. So not only is family and God's design, not only is it a functional thing where it it actually works, like we we can live, we can reproduce, and then the next generation does the same thing and, and the world goes on, that's part of the order. But also through Scripture, you see that God set this up as a visible sign of a greater truth. Now, even, even over time, as, as uh, men and women have married, some of them have probably never known about God, have never, have never chosen to follow God, you might say, well, does that marriage reflect something of God if they're not following God? Well, I would still say that the picture of marriage still projects a, a, a picture, an image that God wants. We're gonna, we'll talk about that this morning. Back in Genesis... God created a wife for Adam out of his side. He took the rib. He created a wife, Eve. From the beginning, two became one. But then, so that's way at the beginning. Now, if you go to the end of the scriptures, Revelation, in about Revelation 19, you have marriage again. So from prior to the fall 
to the end of the revelation with what we know. Now, I don't know what all is going to happen in eternity, but from what God has revealed to us, you have marriage on both ends. In Revelation, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 describes, describes a bride, and it says that she's clothed, she's arrayed in fine, white, pure linen. Beautiful, a bride. And it's describing the church coming to meet the bridegroom, which is Christ. And then in Revelation 20, I think, it talks about the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Like when the new, the new kingdom, the new reign begins, it says the new Jerusalem comes, it's like a bride adorned for her husband. So all through time, marriage is a model of what a future reality where Christ as the bridegroom unites with his bride, the church. And so with that kind of a vision about what marriage typifies, I think it is so important that we highly emphasize good marriages. I think it is important that our marriages demonstrate the character qualities of Christ as the bridegroom and the response of the bride to Christ. And that happens within our physical marriages. Now, I I realize many marriages don't acknowledge God. And so you might say, well, does that really give that picture? I'm not here to, to really answer that, except for Christians, marriage is an amazing opportunity to be a testimony to the world of the greater reality that we see beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation. And marriage has always been part of God's plan, and it's a visible sign to the world and to the, and to the heavenly realms as well. I'm not sure if we'll talk about that much, but it, that's also true. <clears throat> so in light of that, since you have marriage at the beginning of time and you have it at the end of time, think about that. And I don't want to go into divorce and remarriage very long this morning, but I just want to mention it. If, if God valued marriage so much that he, he created it at the beginning as the perfect union, and he ends with him coming for his bride, the church, what happens to that picture when you have a divorce? Will God, will Christ ever divorce his church? Will God ever divorce his church and choose another bride? And I know, I know those issues become very messy because they become entangled in family, and you, you, you probably all have a connection to that somehow. And I know it's a very difficult thing. And we wrestle sometimes with the past, Jesus' teaching uh, in, in Matthew and talks about yeah, divorce and remarriage, and is this adultery, and, and those questions. But when you realize that God has a greater picture, and, and you think about the faithfulness of God to his church, and even if you look back through the Old Testament, how many times when Israel turned away from God, and they went after other gods, God accused them of adultery because he, va- he saw their covenant relationship like a marriage. And so when Israel went, went after idols, he says, you're going after other lovers. You're adulterers, you're adulteresses. So marriage is, is an extremely important thing. And I think that we should keep that picture in mind when we interpret scriptures like in Matthew where he talks about divorce and remarriage. Uh, remembering that marriage is not just about the function Number one, it's not just about a structure for us to have families and, you know, because you could argue that, well, divorce and remarriage, you, you know, you see happy marriages come out of that. Well, what about the sign? What about number two, that visible sign that God has? It violates the sign. Uh, I'd like to just refer back to this slide from last time as well uh, as kind of a premise for, for authority and, and uh, submission so headship and authority in God's design. We, we talked about this last time. God the Father to Jesus, to the man, to the woman. Uh, authority always 
comes, it's not in a coercive way, in a forceful way. It's loving. And the response of submission is a willingness or a glad submission. So where do we find ourselves in, in order? <clears throat> so I titled the message this morning, um, Submission, the Key to the Headship Order. What is the key to the headship order? I already said the word, and the word is uh, submission. I want to define submission for this morning. Submission is a method of resolution when there is a conflict of wills. So for this morning, and I already know, I don't think I'm going to get through the message. I'm just going to quit at, at a certain time and maybe pick it up later because I think there's several models here, and it's Christ, first of all, and then you have the church, and then you have marriage, the actual physical marriage that, that displays some of I don't think we'll get through all of it. But think about what is submission. Submission is when you have two wills desiring different things. And so how do you, how do you resolve a conflict when you have two strong wills coming together? Now, most times... Um, Times in typical relationships, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in the church or otherwise, usually things get worked out before there's that just an impasse where two wills just cannot agree or they're not reconcilable. So I, I would believe that submission, I don't know if I want to call it a, a, a thing of last resort, but we don't typically in a healthy relationship have to hammer submission because most times you, you can work things out, even in a healthy marriage. Um, if, if the husband is constantly hammering his wife, you need to submit. You know, it's, it's your job to submit. Well, there's probably something unhealthy about the marriage already. But when there is a disagreement and you have God's order, then someone has to give. And so submission is, is the way you reconcile that. Who, ha- who is called to submit? We're going to see who is called to submit. The test of submission is when our will comes into conflict with the will of my authority. I thought of this in light of, of uh, raising our children. So it could be very easy when you have conflict with your children or if your children uh, resist you, especially when they're young. You, know, you try to tell them to go pick up toys and, and then you start to realize that, you know what, every time I tell them to pick up their toys, they always like raise a fuss. So I just won't ask them that. I'll, I'll just always kind of ask them things that I know they're going to say yes to. Well, then we could say, well, our children, yeah, they submit because, you know, we're, there's no issue. Well, the, the true test of submission is always when you say something and they don't want to do that, whether it's your children or whether it's anywhere. So submission, to, to know whether or not I'm submissive to my authorities, is when have I come into conflict, uh, conflict with the will of someone who is over me in, in authority? Maybe it's your boss. Um, that's the true test. How do I handle it when something is not going the way I want to? So our response in that, submission is the evidence of coming under the authority structure God has placed us in. If I am finding myself constantly in conflict with, with my authorities, then I would say that there is there's a lacking of evidence that I'm coming under the authority structure God has placed me in. Now, we could dig in deeper into, well, what, what does submission mean? What does it, are there times when there's um, maybe in a marriage, there's a husband that's abusive? You, you have those situations, all right? But I'm saying as a general rule, when I am in a chain of authority, submission is the indicator of how I'm handling 
the authority structure that God has placed me in. For an example, this is probably about 13 years ago or something like that. Um, I was, my wife and I were driving our van. We had a minivan at the time, and I think we had our two oldest girls with us. And I don't know what we'd been doing for the day. I think we were shopping or something, and that evening we had an event, and I think it was actually with the Cornerstone Board. Every year we'd do this supper thing. And so we were rushing to take our, our children to the babysitter, and then we had to rush back up to Elkhart, or I forget where we went. But anyway, so I was driving down State 19, north of Napanee, and you guys know where County Road 46 is. And about 13 years ago, they put in a traffic light there, and so it was a construction zone for a while. And the, the construction project was done. I mean, it was, there was not a piece of equipment there. There were no barriers there. But the signs were still there. It still said construction zone. And so I come driving through this construction zone. I was headed for Napanee, and all of a sudden, I encounter a police officer coming from the other way. And right away, he flipped on his lights, and he did a U-turn, and he came after me. And I thought, what? I didn't really know what my speed had been, but I, I was just, I was pretty sure I wasn't speeding. And so he pulled me over, and uh, he wasn't really that nice. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't mean, but he wasn't, he wasn't really, you know, personable, if you want to put it that way. And he let me know what my violation was, and he wrote out a ticket. And I remember him, I was already a little bit uptight about this, but I remember him like actually like peering into the windows of our vehicle because he wanted to see if our children were strapped in, you know. And I thought, just, you know, take it easy here. I'm not a, I'm not a criminal. But anyway, he, write, he writes me a ticket, and since it was for a construction zone, the ticket was like $450, and I was going to get several points in my license. And, and I, in my, I was a little bit upset about it, and for one thing, it, it was barely a construction zone anymore, but I also felt like it wasn't, I was, I was sure I had been out of the zone. I, I didn't think, it didn't happen right by the intersection. I was already way past it. So anyway, we, 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 did, we had to go on with our evening. So about a day later, I was driving through the same area. So I thought, I, I want to stop. I got to document this here. So I, I, I stopped there and I, and I looked at where, I actually found his tracks off to the side of the road where he did his U-turn. So I got to look in there and I said, you know, when he's going this way, his speed limit sign says you're supposed to be going 45, and I see where he turned around. But when you went down the road away, and if you're coming the other way, then the speed limit changed sooner, like you went back to normal speed. So I could understand how in his mind, he's in a 45, but in my mind, I'm coming from the other way, and I'm in a 55. And so I, I started taking pictures. So I lined up the signs, and I looked at the tracks, and I took about, I don't know, half a dozen pictures because he had said, you know, you can show up in court. Some of you have experience in this. <laughs> now, I didn't feel like I was resisting the authority, but I felt like, okay, is there a time? How do I handle authority? But however, what I want to point out about the situation, I could argue all day about how he handled the traffic stop. I could argue all day about the position of the signs. I was not in the zone, and he was wrong. But one thing that was, was not a question in the moment, when his lights went on, I had no choice, but I pull over. And no matter what he tells me, even if I feel like he's being, you know, unkind, or even if I, you know, know his history, let's say I know the guy and he's, he's a bad husband and all these things, I could say all these things about him. But in that moment, it, it doesn't matter because there is an authority structure there. Now, on, on, on top of this, I think I said this to the instruction class a couple weeks ago, there are times when, when there is an appeal process. In authority. I, I remember, the, I think the first time I heard about the appeal process, it was actually Dave Hosteller, my father-in-law. Before he was my father-in-law in, in high school, um, he, I was, he was my teacher for one year. And I remember 
we were having a discussion about something, and whatever the whatever he had said or whatever the the rule was at the time, you know, I wasn't very wasn't too happy about it. But I remember him saying something like, he said, "Okay, well, if if you have you come up against a rule or authority or whatever, there is the thing of making a wise appeal. So can you appeal your case, but do it in do it in a good way, do it in a in a good attitude, a good spirit." And there are times that authority structures, uh, wherever they are, will say, oh, okay, I understand where you're coming from. But if I come at it with, hey, you're wrong, and I have an attitude, and, and you know, I'm, I'm bucking authority, most times uh, an appeal like that isn't heard. So anyway, I, uh, it was very inconvenient for me to show up in court because that winter we were actually out at Faith Builders for winter term. And the court date came up, and I called. I said, is there, can I do something about this? And they weren't really helpful over the phone. I found out later, yeah, I could have I moved dates. But anyway, I tried. So I was like, well, at the time, $450 was just, that's, that was too much money. I couldn't afford it. And gas was cheaper than it was now. So I thought if I make the trip from Guy's Mills to Elkhart one afternoon and back, you know, the gas will cost me maybe, I don't know, 80 bucks. And then I still, you know, I, I got to figure something out. So Looking back, I don't know if I'd have done this, but I, I skipped one class out there. I hopped in my vehicle, and I drove straight to Elkhart, and I showed up in traffic court, and um, I had all my pictures. I print, had printouts, and I was ready to defend myself. And then in the end, what? Uh, so you go before the judge, and he says, you know, how do you plead? And so I was like, not guilty, and take you back in some back room. Well, we, we, you know, we sat around for a long time. Well, in the end, I had a meeting with the, the prosecutor, me and, you know, 50 other people. So it wasn't very personal. It was like, you know, he, they were kind of moving him through. So he didn't even, he didn't, we didn't even get to my pictures. I was so disappointed. I did all this work. But he said, well, I, said, I can drop it down to just a normal ticket. And he said, if you don't get any, any tickets the next year, the points will go away. And uh, otherwise, I'd have to show up for another court date to, you know, really try to get this off. So I thought, well, okay, I think I saved $300 and I have a chance to get my record clean. And so that's what I did. But in the end, I thought uh, about the whole situation. And I was like, you know, I still, in the end, I'm thankful that that officer was out patrolling. I didn't like to get pulled over that day. But the fact that there was that authority structure, the fact that there was an enforcement for it, for me was still a protection because, okay, maybe he got me on the wrong day, but there's other people out there that maybe needed to be caught. Or you know what I'm saying, in society in general, there has to be this order, this, this structure. But the question is, how do I respond when I'm called to account? And how do I respond when I feel like it's not warranted? So that's something for us to think about. The, the first, um, I said I'd like to talk a little bit about Jesus, about the church, and about marriage. And I think uh, for now I'd like to look a little bit at Jesus. In this picture of marriage, Christ and the church, Jesus is the bridegroom. So how did Jesus as a man, how did he demonstrate submission to authority? Now, most of these scriptures are familiar to us. But think about uh, that first time in Luke chapter 2. This is when Jesus is 12 years old. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 46 to 52. I'd like to, to read through this here. I'm not sure how well you can read this. Can you see this from the back? Kind of. Why don't we stand? I'd like for us to read this together. Just have a little bit more interaction here. Let's read this passage together. Luke chapter 2, uh, 46 to 52. All together. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Why have you done this to us? Look, 
Your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You may be seated. You could say that Jesus at 12 years old displayed and demonstrated tremendous intellect and wisdom. In fact, I can just picture him in the temple and the scribes and those who were there just marveling, like, where does this, where does this young boy come up with his questions? And, and, and he engages them in a, in a way that there's just there's so much understanding there. And you could almost think that Jesus in that time, even when he tells his mother, when they come looking for him, you know, he tells her, well, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Like, I'm here because I was sent. But right after that, Jesus' response is, I think, is very interesting. The scriptures specify that he went back home with them and he was subject to them. He submitted himself to his earthly parents in spite of his wisdom and his learning. And then the last phrase there, Jesus increased in wisdom. How is that? The Son of God increases in wisdom. And he does that in the context of being in submission to his parents. He increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Um, that, that favor, I think, probably has to do with <clears throat> how he was received by others. People like Jesus. There was something about him that was different. But he's, he's very patient. We realize that the scripture is pretty, pretty blank between 12 years old and when Jesus comes into his public ministry at the age of 30. But I assume that for those many years, Jesus placed himself in subjection to his parents. He's functioning within the community. And it says he's, he's gaining wisdom. He's growing. He's learning. That's the attitude we have of Christ while he was here on earth. The second scripture I'd like to refer to is that further on as he goes into uh, he, he performs his ministry, and we know that the purpose of him coming was to be the sacrifice. And so he goes through all this agony. We mentioned Gethsemane a little bit last time. But I wanna, I'd like to reference here in Hebrews chapter 5 some of the descriptions about, about Jesus in this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's a description of his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, his cry and his tears. Now, I mentioned before that the test of submission is when our will comes up against another's and, and it can't be reconciled. I believe that Jesus throughout his life and throughout his ministry, he was always seeking to do the will of God. And we, we know about those times when he'd go into a mountain to connect with God. I think most of the times the relationship with God was, it was very close, very intimate. And Jesus was constantly like, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to do your will. What is it that you want me to do? And so 
would you say that most of his life was marked by, by submission? Well, to a degree, because he was obeying his father. But what about when those two things came to a head? And it was at the moment of Jesus' lowest time in his life, the agony in the garden, when suddenly this cup of suffering is staring him in the face, and I think the horror of what he was about to go through, the, not only the physical suffering, but, but the, the separation from God, God turning his back on Jesus and the sin of the world, and all of a sudden you have Jesus really beginning to struggle in, his, in himself as a man, and his, his will is coming up against the Father's will. And he says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And we know the agony, how, how the blood was pouring out like, his sweat was coming out like blood. But it's his will up, up against the Father's. But then each time, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus goes through this three times. This was not a, just a quick prayer with God. This is a wrestling of his will. And he, he has to submit himself to his Father's will. And he does. Praise the Lord, he does. He submitted himself to his Father's will. And each time his, spirit, his attitude with his Father was, not my will, but your will be done, is how he came through. Well, then here in, in Hebrews, it says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. How is that possible? How does the Son of God learn obedience? But it was part of his perfection somehow. The last verse, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think we all realize if Jesus had backed out, he would not have been the author of salvation. But for him to go through with it, it meant he had to submit his will to his Father. That was Jesus in the flesh, our example. Jesus, you could say, was, was the, ideal, is the ideal man. He's the last Adam. He's the one who personified what God intended, I think, for all of us to become, to be. But he also wrestled. He wrestled as a man. And ultimately, God used it for his perfection. Someone, I read somewhere, someone pointed out, you know, this was the one prayer in his life God did not answer. How many times did Jesus in his ministry, he'd raise the sick, or he'd raise the dead to life. He would heal the sick. He would speak to his father. He would, he would, he would stop the waves. I mean, creation was at his disposal. He could ask his father anything, and it would happen. But when he asked his father to take away the cup of suffering, the answer was no, because it was the only way. And Jesus wrestled through that, and he, and he came to that point of submission. I already mentioned, though, not every day was a garden experience for Jesus. I don't believe that to be the case. But when there was that, that garden experience, the wrestling of the will, then he was, he was, he was committed to, to following the will of his Father, and that meant he'd have to go through with this. Not my will, but thine be done, is the testimony that Jesus leaves us. So submission to God's order of authority becomes necessary when there is a conflict of wills. Then the last thing I want to mention about Christ is at the end, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about the end of time, what happens in the end of time. Um, I'm going to quickly read this. I know we're running out of time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 to 28 says this, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, we often, we often read that at Easter because it's, it's kind of the... Um, it talks about the resurrection of Christ. It's kind of the proof of his resurrection. Some of the evidence is there. So it's right in the middle of that chapter. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, remember, Adam, by man also, capital M-A-N, 
came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then he says, then comes the end. So now he's projecting out way to the end of time, just like that picture I gave you of Revelation, that marriage. So Paul says, then comes the end. What happens at the end? When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. You understand that? King of kings, Lord of lords, that's Christ. He, he takes all, all rule, all authority, all power over all things in the end, by the end, except for God who put him there, right? That's what it's saying up to this point. Then I want you to catch the last verse. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. So at the end of time, when all this whole plan is completed, when, God, when Jesus puts down all authorities, he puts down all kingdoms, he is supreme. It says when, it, when that's all done, he turns it back over to his father and he becomes subject to him. That's pretty amazing to me. We talked about this last time, how even within the Trinity, there is that order. There is that, that submission. There's that headship. But Christ ultimately, as after he wins the victory, says he makes himself subject uh, in the final chapter of all time, Jesus makes himself subject to God, his Father. <clears throat> what about with, with Christ, or with his bride, the church? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I know I have big chunks of scripture here this morning, but that's what I want to appeal to in this whole process, is it is the scripture that talks about these things. So how, first of all, we see how Christ subjected himself, not only as an earthly man, but in the end of time, he will subject himself to his father. How do we see submission and this, in this order? How do we see this within the body and in, in the bride of Christ? And there's a lot of things we could talk about. This is just kind of an overview here. First uh, Peter chapter 5 actually is talking, first of all, to elders, to leaders of the church. But he makes a comparison here that I want us to catch. So this is how elders are supposed to be within the church. First uh, Peter 5, 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. The King James says feed. This is the New King James. So this is their role. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, let's stop there for a little bit. So this is to elders, how he's telling them to how they should be within the church. In their role, he says, don't be like lords. You're not using your position of authority to, to lord it over or to use that power for something. But he says, shepherd them. Some of you have sheep. We currently have some sheep at, at our place as well. I'm not a shepherd by any means. In fact, my sheep probably would run away from me if they'd see me more often. But shepherd them means to care for them or to feed them. Make sure they, they, they have water. Bring them to places of, of rest and of peace. 
Sheep don't like rushing water, as I understand it. So if you take them to a, a rushing stream, they won't drink unless you can get a pool of water for them. But sheep require so much care. I'm, always, I'm amazed at the vulnerability of a sheep. You know, when they flip them over on their back, they're just kind of done. There's not much they can do. So the, the idea of the authority here of, of overseers or of elders is care for the sheep. Not as lords, have a willing heart, don't do it for personal gain, but ultimately you are to be an example to the flock. Okay, so that's, that's the first part. But then here's the key word, likewise. This is what shepherds should be like. And he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Likewise, you younger, says, submit yourselves to your elders. Sometimes that's, a, that's difficult. But he's talking now about within the flock. So the first part of that was the, the, over the shepherds in the flock. But now he's saying, likewise, you that are within the flock, that's the church, submit yourselves, younger, submit yourselves to your elders. But then he goes on and says, submit, I'm sorry, all of you be submissive to one another. So think about that. We talked about um, the key to, to this headship thing working is, is submission. So in this case, in the body of Christ, he says, it's to one another as well. So think about the conflict of wills. How many times in a, in a church family does this happen? You have a conflict of wills. We're so different. Other scriptures, we don't have time, but when it talks about the body of Christ, there's so many different members in the body, and we have so many different gifts, and we have so many, we're so different. And never do you have everyone thinking the exact same way. Never do we all just, yeah, this is exactly how I think, and we're all, we're all same in that way. So it's going to take some kind of, how do you work this out together? He says, submit yourselves one to another. How do you do that? What if someone else is wrong? What if I see things right and they're wrong? How am I supposed to submit to my brother and sister? The way shepherds are to lead the flock is the template for how the church is supposed to relate to each other. Not as lords, but as servants, as submitting to one another. And the key word in this passage, I think, is humility. It takes a lot of humility to be able to submit myself to someone else, especially when I think they're wrong or maybe I don't respect their opinions all the time. But that's the spirit, a spirit of humility because who gets grace? Who receives grace? Who does God give grace to? He gives grace to the humble. What does God do with the proud? Resist them, right? Humility and pride. Those are our two choices, how we're going to relate to one another in the body of Christ. It's also true in our, in our physical families as well. It takes a lot of work to get along within your family. Humility or pride, which one is it going to be? If we choose to humble ourselves, it says God gives grace for the humble. Now, I see grace being a thing of, Sometimes um, 
we make ourselves very vulnerable by having to just humble ourselves. And it, like, it's, it's easier to want to control outcomes, if you know what I'm saying, in life. So many times when we start to lose control of something, it makes us feel vulnerable. But it says God gives grace. So even if, even if we're not sure sometimes, I think we should err on the side of submitting to one another. We can have our opinions and we, we may think certain ways. But if I come with a spirit of humility, it says God gives grace. And that grace may, might mean he'll change my own heart, but it might also mean he, he can change the heart of the person I'm, my will is up against. He gives grace to the humble. But I don't want to be on the side of the one who God resists. If I have a proud spirit, an arrogant attitude, God is up against that. That's not a place I want to be. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And that last verse in verse 7, he says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I, I think that ties right in with the idea of being willing to, to humble ourselves, and even if it makes us very vulnerable. He says God cares about that. If we humble ourselves before God, he, he knows. He knows the truth in all this. Where it says there previously that, that he may exalt you in due time. See, sometimes humbling ourselves um, seems extremely unfair, or maybe we're, we feel taken advantage of in a situation. But if we humble ourselves, it gives God the opportunity to elevate us. Remember the uh, story that Jesus, I think Jesus talks about it in a parable, where you know, if somebody sits in, the high seat, in a higher seat and then someone more important comes, they get, you know, they get brought down. And the lesson of that was, you know, humble yourself. Sit in the lower seat. God can always, you know, he can always bring you up here. That's the spirit of humility. We humble ourselves. God can take care of the exalting. God can be the one who, who brings vindication if we feel like we're wronged. We don't have to go for that ourselves because it says, just cast your care on him. If it's not fair, if you feel like there's, there's conflict in the church and you're on the short end of the, of the stick in that, humble yourself. And God cares about that. And it says he can exalt you. He's ultimately the one that sets, sets things in order. Can I trust him in that? Can I trust him to do that? One last example before we close on this particular point here. God resists the proud. What if I'm convinced everyone else is wrong and I am right? The Apostle Paul was in a situation that was very unjust. He was in front of the high priest. You all know this story. Paul is in front of the high priest, and Paul begins to give a testimony. And Paul is very sincere. He, he is, what he's saying is right. He tells the council there, he says, I have always tried to live before God with a clean conscience or something like that. And the high priest tells the guy beside him to smack him in the mouth. And they did. They whacked him across the mouth. And all Paul was doing was giving an honest confession of who he was in Christ. Well, something rose up in Paul. I think he was ticked. He just got smacked across the mouth for giving a clear testimony. And what did, what did he do? He spouted right off back to the one who gave the command. He says, God's going to judge you, you whitewashed wall. Basically, he's calling him out as being a fake. He says, you're judging me according to the law, but you just commanded me to be struck against the law. And, he, and he, he's not happy about it. This was offensive to Paul. His, the authority structure in Paul's life at that moment was unjust. What they said was untrue, or, or the, the method in which they, they confronted him and hit him, it was not just in any way. In Acts 23, verse 1, in uh, verse 3, it says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? 
And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's priest, his high priest? Everybody was shocked, I think, at his outburst. And they said, Will you revile God's high priest? What was Paul's response? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I don't think Paul could help himself in the moment, but the moment he was confronted that, listen, this man is in authority over you. He is the high priest. And Paul could have maybe made the argument that, well, you know, Christ is now my high priest and you're no longer in... No, he says, the scripture says this about, uh, I'm not supposed to speak against or speak evil of a ruler. And Paul, he humbled himself. I think that's the spirit of this passage here. Can we humble ourselves even in, in the body of Christ, in the church, with my brothers and sisters, maybe even with authority, where it feels unjust, let God take care of it. We humble ourselves, says God will exalt us in due time. I'm going to stop for this morning. I, I, I would like to talk yet next time about how, this, how does submission happen in marriage. And in a way, that was almost the main part of where I was going this morning. But I think it's important to see Christ's example. We see what the picture of marriage is. We see Christ as the bridegroom, his response in this life, the way he submitted himself to his parents, to the authority in his life, to his father in his crucial time. And then at the end of time, when Christ lays that all down and again subjects himself. That's our bridegroom. And then we have the church, the command here to the church to submit ourselves one to another. We have the authority structure of, of elders and leaders, supposed to be shepherds, not be lords. That's the idea of how Christ and the church are to function. And then I want to talk next time about marriage, this ultimate picture of how Christ and the church work together. How does this get done in marriage and in a healthy marriage? And hopefully... Uh, we can learn a few things from that as well. Shall we bow our heads for prayer?